as you do, God, I just pray that you're glorified. And so, Lord, there's death, sickness, and hardship that's going on. Just pray, God, that you would meet your people in a very real and practical way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Lamentations chapter 4. Now again, the book of Lamentations is the expression of sorrow based upon the destruction of Jerusalem. That which was an assurance had become an arrogance on the part of the Jews. They thought because God dwelt amongst them, because God had given them such rich promises, that they were free from, well, from the judgment of God. It's not true. God expected obedience from him, and he made it very clear in Deuteronomy as Israel was leaving, or at least entering into the promised land, that they would have to still seek after God passionately with all of their hearts. Well, unfortunately, their hearts were turned towards idols, and so God allowed judgment to enter into the land. Now what Judah thought would never happen has come upon them. When a nation becomes enamored by itself, it is at its most vulnerable. The Bible and history tell us that Jerusalem was sacked in 586 B.C. by Babylon. Problem? Pride caused Israel to think more highly of itself than it should. And we should, we need to, we have to make this applicable today and see the parallels with our nation today. See the parallels with what even could exist within the church and see and know that these things are not so, that we would not become enamored by ourselves, thinking of something of ourselves when we should, when we ought not. We become vulnerable as a nation, not become enamored with us based upon our power, based upon our wealth, because we become prideful and we become prideful, we become vulnerable. Proverbs 16, verses 18 through 19, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. It's here that we kind of need to understand and maybe visit these concepts of repentance versus sorry. Because we see sorry in the Bible where it doesn't work out that it causes the grace of God to be lavished upon that particular person. We saw that Judas was sorry, but he hung himself. Esau was sorry, but he was still a perverse man. Then we see those who were repentant and God's grace came upon them. Sorry, sorry is usually an expression of remorse because of what has happened. Something has happened, calamity has come, disaster has come upon a people, and they look back and they revisit their actions and their thoughts and deeds and become sorry. Judah, at this point in Lamentations, is very sorrowful. Repentance? Repentance is an expression of remorse based upon what will or what could happen. Knowing God and understanding the Lord and the goodness of the Lord, understanding that God, well, there's going to be repercussions for the things we say and the things that we do, and understanding and realizing when we're apart from God that, well, we need to get back where we need to be. And that first step is through a heart of repentance. So as sorry as Judah was, they were very rarely repentant. But as we look through First and Second Kings, we saw even Ahab, there was these little pictures of times when they experienced repentance And God was gracious. But the problem is they always return back to how they were before. One day for our nation, 
sorrow will come because repentance has been lacking. We see this play out in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 2 through 11, when the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. It comes very unexpectedly. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day shall not overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Let us exercise our faith. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. We have not been appointed to wrath. But what we have been appointed to do is to be active in our Christian lives because of the judgment that is going to be coming upon the world. As far as the born-again believer, because we are repentant, we will not be made sorrowful. The grace of God embraces repentance and it casts off sorrow. There's no reason for a Christian to be sorrowful. Our sins have been washed away. God chooses to remember them no more. When those sins of our daily lives enter in, we just need to repent. We need to move on. Now keep in mind, repentance carries the connotation of stop doing what you're doing and going in the proper direction that God has set for us. But ultimately, it's the Lord who looks at the heart. We've been looking at the book of Lamentations under five main headings, which encompass each chapter. In chapter 1, we saw a widow's cry. Chapter 2, a broken people. Chapter 3, a suffering prophet. Tonight, chapter 4, a ruined kingdom. Next week will be chapter 5, a remorseful nation. So in chapter 4, the poet, and this book is described as a book of poems, the poet considers what his nation has become. Now keep in mind, it's important that we make the connection This would be a nation upon whom God has shed his grace upon, a nation whom he has stood beside and guided from sea to shining sea. Just as our nation, just as he has done so, he did so with Israel, and just as Israel was disobedient, God allowed them to be conquered and to be taken into captivity. You have to ask yourself, What's to become of our nation if we continue to reject God? But also a nation who has turned its face from God, and now God has turned his face from them. And the idea, instead of being blessed, they now have become cursed. It has become a ruined kingdom. So when it comes to a ruined kingdom, we first see a description of the calamity in verse 1. How the gold has become dim, how changed the fine gold. The stones of the sanctuary are scattered at the head of every street. It's one thing for a nation to be destroyed, it's quite another for the people to be tormented, and that's what's happening, and really the two go hand in hand. Now, when we studied the book of Exodus, and maybe in your reading, you've seen the breastplate of the priest. 
The breastplate was a hand width by a hand width, which is about six inches by six inches. It had rows of stone. It had 12 stones um, total that were on that breastplate, and they were gems. And these gems would represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And the idea is, is that the priest would wear this over his heart and that he would be reminded what, what he was doing, why he was doing, and when he was doing it. He's offering the sacrifice for the covering of sins, representing the people to God and, and God to the people. So there was that constant reminder that he was representing every tribe of Israel. It's also a reminder to him how God feels, the affection of God's heart, and what was of value in God's mind, which is his people. And he holds his people very dear. God is affectionate towards his people. God loves his people to such a degree that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believed on him would not perish, but have everlasting life. The priest, the priest was to never forget that. Well, at some point they did. As a matter of fact, they kind of came back in a good way, and then they forgot it once again, and we see the state of the priesthood during Jesus' time here. But again, that's the whole idea here, how the gold has become dim, how changed the fine gold, the stones of the sanctuary are scattered, or they're poured out at the head of every street. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, we have a parable here. Now, there's something called expositional consistency, when certain standards are set in the parables, they follow through in each parable so that we would have understanding. And we're not going to get into the standards that were set, but we see a picture of the Lord's heart here and one that includes you even tonight. So in Matthew 13, verse 44, again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, you could put that as us thinking, okay, we found the gospel, but did you pay anything for the gospel? Did you hide the gospel? That just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But when it says a field, the field, as we look at the scriptures, it speaks of the planet Earth. And what we have here is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And that's what the Lord did. The Lord gave all that he had to buy that field. Why? It's not that he needed the property. It's not that he didn't already own it, really. But he wanted you. You are his treasure. We are the treasure of the Lord. Now, unfortunately, they rejected God during this time. And so the idea here is, is that the people, the people are scattered. Verse 2. The precious sons of Zion, valuable as fine gold, how they are regarded as clay pots, the work of the hands of the potter. They have been cast into the potter's field, just as a ruined pot would be. So just as it is unthought of to cast gems and gold out into a waste pile, it was equally unthought of for God's people to be thrown aside by him. As far as today, the clay pot illustration, it still holds, but we've got value to us. In Second Corinthians 4, 7, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not us. It's what's contained inside the vessel that adds value to the vessel. What happens when the vessel no longer contains God? What happens when they rejected God? 
they're thrown into the potter's field. That was a waste place where pots that were cracked were thrown into. When an earthen vessel loses what it possesses, it loses all of its value. Now, our city dump. What is our city dump made of? Look at your trash. What is your trash made of? The majority of your trash is filled with containers and wrappers. You used what was of value inside that container, and you didn't keep the milk carton, did you? You didn't keep the wrapper, you threw those away because they were no longer of any value to you. The value that we have is that Christ dwells within us. What happens when a people rejects Christ? The precious sons of Zion, valuable as fine gold, how they are regarded as clay pots, the work of the hands of the potter. Verses 3 and 4. Even the jackals present their breasts to nurse their young, but the daughter of my people is cruel like ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the infant clings to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The young children ask for bread, but no one gives it to them. The most valuable asset that a people have, that a nation has, is their youth. Young people nurtured in the way that they should go spiritually, educationally, and morally will ensure the future well-being of that nation. That's when we look at youth. Now, there's a lot of foolishness tied up in youth, and you'll look at youth and you'll think, oh my goodness, what's going to happen to this nation? But you're shot not to be looking to them. We need to be looking to those who are responsible to training them up in the way that they should go, how much more so in the body of Christ as we support the ministry, as we train them, as we get together for this, the future well-being of the leadership of the body of Christ. And we can even see where the great damage has been done in our nation today through broken homes, misguided priorities, and selfish interests. Children have become an afterthought rather than a forethought. Well, they're always a forethought in the mind of God, and we're told very clearly it's one of the reasons why God created marriage. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 15, he did not make them one. He's talking of husband and wife having a remnant of the Spirit. And why one? Because he seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. It is times of desperation that reveal the selfishness of the human heart. And the idea here is is that it was kind of like an every man for themselves. You see the level of despair. These people are faced with a life-and-death situation, and they've even cast off their children in order to preserve their lives. So the writer, in verse 3, uses this illustration Even the jackals, which were despised, unclean animal, even the jackals present their breasts to nurse their young. Even the jackal, you know, God had created the jackal to take care of their young, and they did a better job than the people of Jerusalem did. And then he also uses the example of the ostrich, but the daughter of my people is cruel like ostriches in the wilderness. Ostriches are known for their lack of care for their youth. And so God is using these occurrences in nature that they would see who they are and they would understand how they are. And and verse 4 speaks of the depth of which they have ignored their children. The tongue of the infant clings to the roof of its mouth for thirst. That means it's parched. 
The young children ask for bread, but no one breaks it for them. So I'm looking at this, and I know they have water. They had water because they had Hezekiah's water tunnel. If you go to um, uh, Israel with us, the next time we go, you can walk through it. It's still there. Somebody posted a picture. They're walking through Hezekiah's water tunnel, and it's still got about two feet of water. And so that water, even today, thousands of years later, it's still flowing into the city from a spring that it was connected to. An amazing thing. The Bible said it happened. You could go see it today. And so it was done for situations and circumstances such as Jerusalem was dealing with. If they're under siege, what first thing you would do is cut off their food supply, cut off their water supply. But they had a water supply, but nobody was taking care of the kids. No one was giving kids the water that they needed. And it says the young children ask for bread, but no one breaks it for them. And so what it's telling me is there is bread, but no one's taking care of them. And so this is kind of a stretch, but you can see the application. Water is a picture of the word of God. Are are, are the children parched and, and nobody giving them water today? Is the word of God still being taught in a home? Are we still sharing the word of God, that which has changed our lives and we consider to be of the utmost importance? Are we living our lives according to the word of God? Are we giving our kids the word? Jesus said he's the bread of life. Are we feeding them the bread of life? Because what that tells me is if you're not taking in the bread of life, then there's going to be death. And I look at the state of the nation and overwhelmingly we see that this isn't happening but we should be able to look at the church and understand that it is, as much as it depends upon us, we need to be preparing the youth of the future. They're the current church, don't get me wrong, but they're the future leaders. How do we want, what do we want the health of the church to be in the future? Verses 5 through 9. Speaking of how the rich have been brought low. Those who ate delicacies are desolate in the streets. Those who are brought up in scarlet and fine clothing embrace ash heaps. The punishment of the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the punishment of the sins of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment with no hand to help her. Her Nazarites, or her noble people, were brighter than snow and whiter than milk. They were more ruddy in, <clears throat> ruddy in body than rubies, like sapphire in their appearance. Now their appearance is blacker than soot. They go unrecognized in the streets. Their sin clings to their bones. It has become as dry as wool. Those slain by the sword are better off than those who die of hunger. For these pine away, stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. God's judgment is the great equalizer. As I've said many times, because the Bible states it, man will stand before God naked. And what I mean by that is transparent. A big part of the nakedness in which man will stand before God is when he is stripped of his titles, of his riches, and his accomplishments. Those things will mean absolutely nothing in the sight of God. And just as I said before, the Lord looks through all and sees the heart. Children are looking or they're learning tonight about King David being given the kingdom. And once again, what's the difference between King David and King Saul? 
I mean, if you didn't know any of the scriptures, you would look at the two, and you would probably think that King Saul was better king than King David. We, the only reason we know that that's not so is because Acts chapter 13, verse 22, tells us that David was a man after God's own heart. And so the Lord looks at the hearts of men and women. And so we have a picture of this in the book of Revelation during the time of tribulation. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 14, it's speaking of the tribulation as it's coming upon mankind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for that great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And the implied answer is nobody. The kings can't. They're in the same caves. They're under the same rocks as the poor person, as the slave is. There's absolutely nothing that humanity can do, and man's... Titles and notoriety and riches will not be able to do a thing for him during that time. We're told that God is not a respecter of persons. And the idea is, we're told that in Acts chapter 10, when it comes to salvation, God desires all men to be saved. God's not a respecter of persons either when it comes to judgment as well. And so this judgment that has come upon Israel has come upon all social and economic classes. We see in verses 6 and 9, The punishment of the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the punishment of the sin of Sodom. Down in verse 9, Those slain by the sword are better off than those who die of hunger. Sodom, their punishment came upon them in a moment. and It was over. It was thorough, no doubt. But they didn't have to suffer as Israel is suffering now. You see that this is a greater punishment to them and that they're having to endure the effects of their sin. And sometimes that's the greatest punishment. Knowing what you're experiencing, you're experiencing because you have forsaken God. Now, Sodom didn't know God, and so God allowed that judgment to come upon them. There was nothing for them really to consider. But for Israel, there is. I mean, can you imagine? Blessed is the person who, when they attacked, they ran through with the sword and killed instantly than me, that I have to deal with all of this after effect. And then you'd be thinking of all the times that you have failed to acknowledge God. All those times when you had rejected him and even going after the false gods of the land violated God's law, even as he said, if we did, that these things would happen. Verse 10 the hands of the compassionate women. It's kind of a funny term to use. Compassionate women, well, it says they have cooked their own children. They became food for them in the destruction of the daughter of my people. Once again, you see the depths to which they have sunk. Because even this way that God has created us to have a passion for the survival of our young You just see the self-centeredness, how it's entered into their hearts, that they are now, it doesn't say they're cooking children, which is bad enough, they're cooking their own children. And we're told this in a few different 
parts of the scriptures when the city was under siege and these things were happening. Secondly, we see the explanation of the calamity, verses 11 and 12. The Lord has fulfilled his fury. He has poured out his fierce anger. He kindled the fire in Zion and has devoured its foundations. The kings of the earth and all the inhabitants of the world would not have believed that the adversary and the enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. Once again, this is a reminder of what they thought could never possibly happen, and they even became prideful in their thoughts. But a reminder here that is important to remember. All the calamity that has come is because of the disobedience of the people, but it's by the hand of God. Same in the book of Revelation. I've heard people try and soften it, you know, speaking of Mother Nature. Who in the world is Mother Nature? Speaking of, well, you know what, this is a nuclear bomb from one country to another. This is the judgment of God. And you can never forget that. In the book of Revelation, it's the judgment of God upon a God rejecting mankind. Because if you reject God, you will suffer the repercussions of that rejection. Again, God loved the nation that he gave himself. He died for himself that whoever would believe in him would not perish. But what that tells me, whoever does not believe in him is going to perish. They're going to stand before God in terror. And so what we need to understand in Lamentations, and we know because we've read the whole book, but God still has a plan for Israel. But as far as the punishment that they're dealing with here, it is from the hand of of God. From the plagues of Egypt to the tribulation of Revelation, they all come from the Lord. The question asked, and you probably heard it before, maybe you've even asked it before, how could a loving God allow any of these things to come to pass? The reason that God allows those hardships, that judgment to come to pass, is because he is just. Now, I've said it many times, seems like I've kind of said it a few times recently, we don't know the grace of God except that there is the existence of the judgment of God. We are all due the judgment of God, but God has given us grace. If there was no judgment, then we would not understand what the grace of God really was, or at least the magnitude of it. Look at the effect that it had upon Moses when he understood the magnitude of the grace of God. In Exodus 34, verses 7 through 9, God is giving a description of the nature and essence of who he is. He says, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the father upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. Now, if that was me, I would be real excited, God, keeping mercy for thousands, Forgiving iniquity and transgressions, that's a good thing in sin. By no means clearing the guilty. That had to strike him deep within his heart. Because as he's standing before a holy God, he's understanding the magnitude of the guilt that is in his heart. He's understanding the imperfections that dwell within his body. And so as God is saying these things, the worst thing that you can do is think, oh yeah, that's for those guys and it's not for me, but I don't think Moses had that reaction. I'm sure he rejoiced in merciful, gracious God and all. He had to, without a doubt, and you'll see why. 
but he also had to come to that understanding that he is just as guilty as anybody else. Because it says, so Moses made haste, bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. Then he said, if now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Notice he's not saying them. He was calling them earlier a stiff-necked people. Now he's realizing just how stiff-necked he is as well. And it caused him, caused him to make haste, to do it right away, to bow his head towards the earth, and he worshiped God. And this is based upon the grace of God realized by the judgment of God. And so Moses, he's confronted by the judgment of God and the guilt that he possesses, but an understanding that the grace of God overcomes all. There are two main reasons that we see the anger of God stirred up here. First is because of the sins of the leaders, those who knew better. (coughs) Not those who should have known better, but those who knew better. Verses 13 through 16. Because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shed in her midst the blood of the just, they wandered blind in the streets and have defiled themselves with blood so that no one would touch their garments. They cried out to them, Go away, unclean, go away, go away. Do not touch us. When they fled and wandered, those amongst the nations say, They shall no longer dwell here. The face of the Lord scattered them. He no longer regards them. The people do not respect the priests, nor show favor to the elders. I pointed it out many times, but remember God's plan for governing a nation. He put the prophet in place. Why did he put the prophet in place? The prophet was in place to deliver the word of God. And then he would have the priest. What was the priest's purpose? To take the word of God that was delivered by the prophet and to teach the people... And all part of that was to offer sacrifice, to do the word of God as well. And then there was the prince, the prince, the potentate, the the ruler of the land. Just as the priest was to take the word of God and to teach the word of God, the prince was to learn the word of God and govern according to the word of God. And then the end result was the people. The people were to be the beneficiaries of all of that. Prophet, priest, prince, and people, well, the first two are defiled. When the first two are defiled, when there's a breakdown at any point, it's going to hurt. But when there's a breakdown at all points, then judgment is going to come. That's all fine and dandy. How does that relate to us today? Well, keep in mind what the prophet is today. Not that there's not the gift of prophecy. There is. But the prophet has, for the most part, Old Testament prophet, has been replaced by the New Testament witness. And so the witness is the one who brings the word of God, who brings Jesus Christ to the masses. I'd have to consider how are we doing in that. Priests would just simply be an obedient Christian today. How are we doing in that? A prince, those who are of influence. As I've said many times, if you're a born-again believer, you're able to influence somebody less mature. How are we doing in that? People, the people are those that God does not wish to see perish. It's when we're obedient As a prophet, only now a witness. As a priest or an obedient Christian. As a prince, are those who are able to um, exercise influence over others that we see the people 
will be the beneficiary of that. We need to assume the responsibility. Secondly, the anger of God was stirred up because they looked everywhere else than the Lord for help. Verses 17 through 20. Still our eyes failed us, watching vainly for our help. In our watching, we watched for a nation that could not save us. They tracked our steps so that we could not walk in the streets. Our end was near. Our days were over, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles of the heavens. They pursued us on the mountains and laid in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the anointed of the Lord, was caught in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live amongst the nations. What was Israel's hope when they realized judgment was coming? Well, when mankind has an expectation of judgment, the only hope that he has is to humble himself in the sight of the Lord. But Israel turned away from the Lord and they turned to everything else that they could think of. They had hoped that a foreign nation would come and rescue them, specifically Egypt. But the problem is Egypt couldn't protect itself. They ended up falling to Babylon. They could do nothing for Judah. They thought that they could resist the Babylonians, but the Babylonians just steamrolled over them. They thought maybe they could run away, but you cannot run away from the judgment of God. And then they also thought that maybe King Zedekiah would be able to protect them. Remember what he did? When they were surrounded, he kind of ran out the back door, although he was tracked down, and eventually his eyes were put out. And so they looked everywhere else but to the gracious God. When faced with the judgment of God, when faced with our sinful nature, there's only one place to turn, and that's to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's at the cross where we find grace. It's at the cross where we find mercy. It's at the foot of the cross that we find the love of God. Remember the Apostle John? How does he refer to himself? I'm the one whom the Lord loved. And I can just see all the other apostles rolling their eyes when they heard that one. But he was the only one who stayed at the foot of the cross. He was the only one who looked up on the cross and saw God's eyes of love looking down upon a sinful man. And so I would imagine the Apostle John Apostle John had to be of the mindset as he's experiencing that sacrificial love of the Lord Jesus Christ. How could he possibly love anybody more than the love that I'm experiencing right now? You should have that same thought. I'm the one that the Lord loves. If you've truly sat at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, through his word, if you looked into those eyes of love, you should see that they look down upon your situation And God gave you grace. (coughs) And then lastly, we have an expectation regarding calamity. This is for Edom. It's a message towards Edom that we saw come to pass. Now, this was a truth that was added. This is an acrostic. So since it's an acrostic, it's got every letter of the Hebrew um, alphabet represented. That's why there's 22 verses. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So that tells me that these last two verses could not have been added at any time or we would have fallen short or had too many verses for the Hebrew alphabet. And so God's just attaching what is going to happen to Edom. He's given us this reality so that we would understand that just as truly as Edom has fallen, 
Israel is going to be preserved. Verse 21. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. That was the area where they lived. The cup, he's speaking of the cup of judgment. The cup shall also pass over to you, and you shall become drunk and make yourself naked. The punishment of your iniquity is accomplished, O daughter of Zion. He will no longer send you into captivity. He will punish your iniquity, O daughters of Edom. He will uncover your sins. This is the punishment that God had for Israel at that time. And they have experienced. Edom is going to get something much worse. The last Edomites that we see exist in the scriptures are the Herods. They're the last time that we see any kind of Edomites. Edom does not exist today as a nation or the Edomites as a people. I think there might be a couple of Edomites that are still alive today somewhere in Israel. I might be wrong on that. I might be thinking of some other race of people, but that's a possibility. But Edom has been long gone. So what happens when the sinful nature of mankind takes priority over the word of God, the kingdom, the kingdom is ruined. The sinful nature of mankind in our nation today has taken priority over the word of God. It's moving in such a a pace and to such a degree that there may come a time when it's even illegal to speak of the word of God from a pulpit or at least certain sections of the word of God from the pulpit. What's to happen to such a nation? We can read back through Lamentations chapter 4. Father, once again, we just thank you, Lord, for your word. And God, I just pray that we would continue and forever to hold it dear. And Lord, as we do, understand that that is the way of righteousness. That is the way that a sinful man can be right in your sight. And so, Father, we just thank you for tonight, praying that you will continue to bless us, go before us in all that we do, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We all stand, please. Sunday morning, we're going to continue on in James, if I can talk back then. Um, Sunday evening, we're going to continue back on in Psalm 119. We've been going verse by verse through Psalm 119. Um, we've been looking at our signups for the men's retreat, and we're right on the verge of needing to get more um, condos if anybody else is going. So if you're going, you need to get signed up. If you can't pay right now, you still need to get signed up so we can make the uh, accommodations that we need to make. God bless you guys.
God bless you guys. Have a good rest of your week.